The Athletic. Shearer. It's a good jump. It's Kieran Dyer. Fast back, Lundgren. Oh, Dyer block. Bellamy. It's in. Oh, it's Hello and welcome to Pod on the Time, your go-to Newcastle United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name is Taylor Payne and coming up this week, we'll be reacting to the last gasp, 1-1 draw v Aston Villa. We're going to be speaking to the author of a brand new book all about Sir Bobby Robson, Harry De Cosimo. We'll be here to talk about Black and White Night. We'll look back at United's 2002-03 Champions League run in the archive. And Chris is asking the questions in a special Sir Bobby Robson-themed version of the quiz where I shall pit my wits against the man who ghost-wrote Sir Bobby Robson's book, and I'm not sure that that is entirely fair, but we shall get onto that later on. Before we get into all the nonsense, uh, I've got just enough time to remind you of the latest offer from The Athletic. So right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of subscription You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as all the ad-free versions of the podcasts. Chris, George, hello, chaps. How are you doing? Are you well? Uh, yes, I'm all right, thank you. How about yourself? I'm not too bad at all. How are you, George? Are you doing okay, mate? I'm all right, yeah. I'm okay. Good, good. It's been a funny old week, hasn't it? And as it always is in Newcastle United land. Uh, we had uh, we had the 1-1 against Villa. Uh, and all the fallout that came with that. But have you guys got any uh, any articles at the minute that are out on the website or anything that the uh, the listeners and the readers should keep an eye out for? Well, by the time this podcast is out, there should also be a piece about Matty Longstaff and where the heck he is and what's happening with him, which uh, I've I've sort of written, sort of column me piece, just looking about the situation that he's only made five appearances all season, hasn't been seen in a Newcastle shirt since January, is fit, but for whatever reason, isn't playing. So trying to explain that situation. But also I did a piece over the weekend on the back of the Villa game, looking at this formation and looking at what has happened since eight games now Newcastle have played it. Is it working? Why are they sticking with it? Why aren't they changing it? Why isn't there a centre forward? Right? Why is uh, one of the centre forwards playing as a, as a left winger? Why is uh, Ryan Fraser, who's never played as a false nine, as far as I'm aware in his life, suddenly playing as a false nine? And basically looking at the ins and outs of that, the statistics of how things have changed before and after it. There are some positives to the, to, to the system. It has given them more balance, but really, is it the right system to help Newcastle get out of the massive hole that they've managed to get themselves into? The double pivot, false nine, ten formation that they're now doing the the false pivot is it a false pivot maybe it's a false pivot a false double nine pivot uh deep lion number seven uh george what about you anything uh, anything interesting on the horizon i'm working on a piece at the moment with mickey mellon who is the manager of dundee united but um probably more interesting than that he's written a book which is called the first 100 days and it's about uh, you know, the first 100 days is a concept we think about with American presidents usually, um, but he's talking about it in terms of football management and how you um, set the right tone when you come into a job and also what what young managers sort of need to do. It's very funny. He's a very, he's, a, he's had great success, Mickey Mellon, uh, in terms of promotions and, um, yeah, very funny, some very funny, quirky stories. But he's basically interviewed... Lots and lots of managers from Solskjaer to Sean Dyche to, to various others about, about that concept of 100 days. Interesting stuff. So get yourself uh, onto theathletic.com forward slash pod on the time to take advantage of the special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash pod on the time. Well, chaps, let's start with the Villa game 1-1. Kieran Clark with an own goal and Jamal Lascelles popping up in the last couple of minutes to even things up for Newcastle. Newcastle struggling uh, to be any kind of attacking threat at the moment, aren't they? And the, the, is the system playing into that, Chris, or is it is it the reason for that, or is it is it something different? Well, I refuse to accept your characterization of it as a game. The first eighty-seven minutes certainly did not qualify as such. There was there was seven minutes of moderate entertainment um, at the end when suddenly yes, Villa scored and then Newcastle threw loads of bodies forward. Um, I mean, the form- I, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago I had a problem with the formation. I still have an issue with it, particularly if you, there aren't the, the first choice front three. I'm not sure if it would necessarily even be the best formation if they were available, but to it, it just feels like a lot of square pegs in round holes. 
we can go over the front three to begin with. I just don't know why Ryan Fraser was playing in the middle and that Dwight Gale was out on the left. It changed after 55 minutes, but even so, Dwight Gale was still so deep. He was not playing as a centre-forward. He was he was playing that what false name, whatever position you want to call it. And it's just bizarre. Yeah, he was picking the ball up on the edge of his own box at times as well, and it's just not what you want, is it? it it's, the, thing I, the thing I thought about Dwight Gale was it nullifies everything that Dwight Gale gives the team. And I, I said this during the game on Saturday, it's, it takes away everything that he's good at which is being in the box, putting the shits up defenders, scoring scrappy goals, tap-ins, getting in the right place at the right time, being a bit of a poacher. You, you just take away all of that. And when you haven't got strikers in the first place, it's it, it just seems like a bit of a waste to me to be playing Dwight Gale in that in that kind of role, George. I don't know how you felt about that. It just, I watched it and I just thought there's no focal point. It, it just felt terrible. No. I mean, when Chris says he doesn't understand why it was done. I mean, I, I understand why it was done, and that is to try and replicate what they were doing with Wilson and Almiron. I mean, that's the idea, isn't it? Where Wilson was playing wide and Almiron was playing through the middle. So it's so, and Newcastle had a modicum of success playing that way, was certainly more successful at getting up the pitch. And so I think that's the idea, but um, it didn't work. It doesn't work with Gale out there. I mean, I suppose you can make the argument. Do Newcastle play well with Newcastle, you know, with Dwight Gale uh, up front kind of on his own? Is that a system that is going to work in the Premier League? Mm. I don't know. But it's certainly, I mean, he was in did towards the end of last season. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. As soon, and, and yeah, absolutely. As soon as you put a centre forward into a sister, into a team that didn't have a centre forward, you meet, immediately notice the difference. I'm playing devil's advocate in the sense of, um, you know, I guess it was an attempt, you know, Steve Bruce has said he's going to stick with that system. It was an attempt to stay with the system with personnel in similar positions, but it 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 didn't work. It didn't the thing work. I don't understand about that, though, is, if, if, first of all, the system, he said this after the West Brom game, he said, I, did, I don't think we had time to change between one game to another. And I could understand if they were playing 4-4-2 or 4-2-3-1, but this is a system which I bet most of those players had never played until six weeks ago. So it's not as if it's not, and maybe you can argue, well, stick with it because then they need to learn it and put it more, but it's like, it's not that these players are programmed to play in this specific way and therefore they need to continue doing that because it wouldn't there wouldn't be time to shift. 4-2-3-1 they played towards the end of last season, 4-4-2 they've played at various points this year. But also since shifting Shelby to the deep line midfielder, the one thing that Shelby can do that we saw in the championship with, with is put Dwight Gale in behind, put put him through the middle. And yet Dwight Gale's out wide. So Shelby is there potentially being able to provide that. It isn't there. And if you look at the midfield I, I, I look at the midfield and see that has a problem as well. Isaac Hayden looks like a fish out of water where he's playing at the minute. I just think he doesn't look... Since he started when this formation was to begin with, he was the deep line midfielder. They've shifted that round with Shelby. And you can see Hayden doesn't know exactly what he's meant to be doing. The one thing he can do is lead the press and he's doing that quite well. But in terms of when he gets the ball, he's passing it backward more often than not. He passed it directly out of play at one point at the, at the weekend. I just think that it, it's a lot of players who look sort of uncomfortable and changing to their roles. And I understand that we said for so long this team needed an identity and, and that they shifted towards this. But given all the injuries and given the fact that it's just all about wins now, I just think something like 4-2-3-1 or 4-4-2 would make more sense just because players, I think, would be more comfortable and more reassured in what they were being asked to do rather than sort of learning on the job at the same time as needing to win games. What are you on about? The run continues, Chris. The run <laughs> continues with another point, another point accumulated. And at this rate... Newcastle will get to safety by getting one point every single week. And you're saying it's all about wins, but maybe it's just all about getting a draw every absolutely single every game, single yeah. week. To borrow your turn of phrase, George, it's more of a limp than it is a run, isn't it? It's definitely a limp. It is definitely absolutely. a limp. And then, I mean, I, I, we, Chris and I had this chat sort of straight after the game. It's like, how do you evaluate that? Well, I, I evaluate it. I, I would like to think that the sort of momentum of the last kick, which it was, you know, uh, or head, header, um, can stay with the team. Yeah. That's what you hope. And that they, you know, that that feeling, now that feeling in the stadium, I've said this so many times, but that feeling, feeling in the stadium with a full stadium, it would have been brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, that would have felt like, you know, okay, fine. It was a shit game, but there's that moment at the end. Now you hope that, you hope that that stays with them 
and you know rob lee talked about that on the on the uh, on the commentary and you know you just sort of hope that stays with them but what came before was awful again it was awful and you're you're evaluating newcastle's results not on their own terms anymore we've long since given up on that we're relating to them to what happens next and as soon as brighton win that becomes another bad point. It does. You know, it's a yeah. bad point for Newcastle. So I hope the momentum stays with them, but on its own terms, it's a bad point. Yeah, it did, did feel like that after the after the Brighton result came through. Um, with, with regards to to Joe Linton as well, and we've we've spoken about him on a number of occasions. I, di- I didn't think he was terrible on uh, on 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 Saturday. Uh, I didn't think it was was it Saturday Sunday. Sunday, Friday, Friday. God, God, it feels every day. Every day is like Sunday, to quote Morrison. But I thought, I thought Joe Linton was at times he he was linking the player well and stuff like that. But I just want a bit more from him. And if he's being played in this sort of split split striker role, um, you know, people said he's not a through the middle number nine kind of player. So we're going to give him this role of playing slightly wider and 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 try and get him on the ball a bit more. I just I need something else. There was another there was another opportunity when he got through on goal and he tried to square it instead of shooting. And I was sitting pulling my hair out. And and you you would you would argue and say a player with confidence would would be drilling that towards goal and, and potentially scoring, but he did it against uh uh in uh what was the other game? West Brom. The West Brom game. He did it in the West Brom game and he did it in this game again. And it just looks flattened. The lad just looks completely flattened and that. I don't know what we can do with him, but he doesn't feel like the answer. Do you know what I mean, Chris? No, there are some things he did reasonably well around the pitch. I thought he got in behind. I mean, Tyrone Mings was awful, but I thought he got in behind him pretty well and, and, and caused him a few problems there. But it's as soon as he gets any anywhere near the box, he really is. His decision-making is, is, is really, really poor. And he doesn't ever seem to make the right decision. He seems to shoot when he shouldn't or take an extra touch mm-hmm. as he did during the first half against Villa when he should shoot. Shearer was on commentary for... Uh, five live and said that he said he, he shouldn't take that extra touch. You've just got to finish that. Just just take your chance. Yeah. In the second half, yeah, he passes it across when he should he should shoot. And it was it was the same at, at Villa. He's not a natural goal scorer. The only time we've seen really him look a little bit more comfortable was when he was up in the round with Callum yes. alongside him, taking that responsibility off him. But with no goals in this team. I think it just brings even more focus onto Joe Linton to need to score. And unfortunately, he just doesn't look like doing it reg- well at all, never mind regularly. If he's not a natural goal scorer, what is he a natural? Well, yeah. We're still waiting to find I out. Don't have an answer to your question. I don't have, I don't, I don't well, have an answer I mean, either. You know, because he's not a winger and he's not a midfielder. You know. And he's not a striker. So what is he? I don't want to hammer him, but I do want to hammer the people repeatedly, who decided that he was the answer to what Newcastle needed, either at the time or now, with the coaching structure and with the coaching staff they've got and with the personnel that were already in the team and in the squad. I've said this before, if he cost five million quid, he would not be playing in the the team. He wouldn't. And he has been more, he has been, quote unquote, more effective in this system, playing higher up the pitch and, and wide, but he doesn't score, he doesn't look capable of shooting. And he doesn't provide enough elsewhere, you know, in the pitch. I'm not disputing that he's been effective elsewhere with a good, you know, again, quote unquote coach, yeah. you know, could could be an effective player. That's not what he was brought into, though. He was brought into this team and this squad, given the number nine shirt and told to play under Steve Bruce. And it has not worked no. from day one and it's still not working. And people, you know, people sort of saying he was a bit more effective, as I've just said. I mean, it's like compared to what? Yeah. He is one of the biggest follies in the club's history. And it, again, it's not it's not his fault, but... You know, absolutely shocking decision. It's crazy, isn't it? The boogies have, have now got Newcastle's favourites to go down alongside Sheffield United and West Ham. And we go to Brighton with essentially a relegation six-pointer. And, and and what do Newcastle need to do now in order to turn this round? Because if they lose this game, they are knee-deep in the shit, aren't they, George? It's it, 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 This is real serious time now. Well, they're already waist-deep. So, I mean, being knee-deep... <laughs> yeah. which okay, is just, neck-deep in the but, shit, but, then, but, shall we say? But... Um, I don't want to say it's an enormous game because I mean it's it's Brighton versus Newcastle, seventeenth and sixteenth or whatever they are. It's a pathetic little shitty little match, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it will be full of tension. You know these two teams who came up together, of course. 
who have kind of gone on, gone on different routes. And yeah, I'm going to go down for that because I think, um, you know, I kind of want to go there and see it and feel it. But it's, you know, you know, it's just it's just awful that it's come to this. And Steve Bruce keeps saying it. Newcastle have got to find a way and they do. But I don't have any sort of great confidence that they will or that they can. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the scary thing. They need to make sure they don't drop into the bottom three because Newcastle are the ones that you just can't see or that I can't see clambering out of it. So having got that point last weekend, they need to follow that up and they need to shore up their position. Absolutely. Well, chaps, let's move on. Uh, coming up next, we've got in-depth chat with the author of a new book all about Sir Bobby Robson. Harry DeCosimo will be joining us for a chat after this. Hello listeners, sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We are joined by a very, very special guest today, uh, the author of a brand new book all about Sir Bobby Robson, Black and White Knight, how Sir Bobby Robson made Newcastle United again. We've got Harry DeCosimo with us. Harry, how are you doing? Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me on. Really big fan of the show, so it's great to be here. Oh, that's good to know, mate. Thanks for coming. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. The last time I saw you, Harry, in person, me and you were playing up front at St. James's yeah. Park together in a charity football game yes. in a performance described to me by Rob Lee as utter shit. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I got to clear that was me, up. by the way. That wasn't you. You were great. I've got to clear this up because I, I mentioned that to Rob when I spoke to him for the book and he said that I was rubbish and I turned around and showed them John Beresford's Man of the Match shirt on the wall. So clearly I wasn't that bad. <laughs> Well, the two of you might be up front again next season for Newcastle itself in the the championship. So that's it. I'm going to get them boots out again and have another go. I think me and you could make a dynamite partnership, Harry. Definitely. Absolutely. So, Harry, the the book came out yesterday. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. How are things going? What's the initial sort of reaction been, and and how how are things sort? Is there any feedback coming into you from from people or overwhelmingly positive so far? People have got the book and they're really excited about it. I got. Um, told by the publishers yesterday that they're reprinting it already because they're running wow. out of copies, which is um, which was something that was really pleasant to hear. On Amazon, it's currently a bestseller as well, which I'm you know trying not to get too excited about, but it's all very very positive and very very overwhelming at this stage. That's fantastic, and obviously the kind of the history of the book. Where where did the where did the initial spark of the idea come from and the the motivation for this? Was it something that's been on your mind for a long time, or is it a is this something that just quickly came to you and, and you thought, I better do this? No, I always wanted to write a book and it was a case of trying to find the right thing. I was sitting around at the end, like middle of last season thinking, you know, I want to do something to make this a, a reality. And the Bobby Robson idea hit me because for two reasons, mainly because one, it's a story that I don't think has been told enough. I think there's a, there's a, there was a gap in the market for the book. I think people have done a lot of stuff on the Kevin Keegan era there's been a lot of you know knowledge on the the Mike Mike Ashley era and the the Rafa Benitez era particularly. There's been a lot done on, but the but, but so the Sir Bobby Robson era is sort of left alone. And I think that that when you think of that as a there's a, in terms of generations of people. So me, I know Chris. I, Chris said something. I think you were talking about the Manchester United game, uh, the one 0 where Schmeichel was ridiculous the other week. 
And Chris said that he didn't remember that game because he was only four years old. And basically that is effectively the, the, the reason I'm, I'm two years younger than Chris. I was only two at the time. So I wanted to do it because there's a whole generation of people who don't remember the Keegan years, but still know what it's like to enjoy being a Newcastle fan. And there's a really good opportunity to, to do that, especially with everything that's going on at the moment. It, it sort of felt like a good time to bring out something positive. And George and Chris were highly involved. Well, I'll say heavily involved. George wrote the forward for the book and Chris provided a quote for the cover. Chris, that's a bit lazy on your part, I have to say. Uh, but no, Chris was heavily involved in the book as well with you, wasn't he? And what's it like working with these two? Well, in fairness to Chris, he was probably the, the person who worked the hardest beside me because I sent him every single chapter in its rawest form and just threw it at him and said, can you just sort this out for me? And he came back to his credit with every single, with like lines of like really good improvements and advice within like an hour of each time that I sent it, which was incredible. And George's forward is brilliant. George was the, the only person I wanted for the forward. Uh, uh, it was one of the very first things that I decided upon was getting George involved for the forward because I knew that it would be brilliant. And it's really great to, to be speaking to people who are obliged to say something nice about the book. So, um, so you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We can hardly slug it off, can we? Which, I mean, it's not... Uh, it's got your name on it, mate. <laughs> we like to be miserable on this show, but uh, no, we can't, we can't be about this. Harry's written a beautiful, fantastic book about a very, very important part of Newcastle's history. And, you know, another, another thing that he's done is that he's making a donation to the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. I've got that as my um, as my screen here because I'm a patron of the foundation and it it's very moving to me and very emotional for me because I helped Bobby write his last book and I gave my fee to his foundation and Harry is doing something very similar. And I think I find it very moving talking with my sort of foundation head on that people still relate to Bobby in the same way that, you know, he is still having that influence on people and that people are still doing sort of remarkable things in his name. I mean, that was something that always surprised him, that always kind of blew him away, that people did that with his name. But then football is also such a sort of um, fast-moving thing that so many people now won't have any memory of their own about, you know, Sir Bobby and his time at the club, but still they're persuaded to pull on a pair of running shoes for the first time in their lives or host a coffee morning or, you know, do a sponsored walk or whatever. And people are still doing that. And, um, you know, the foundation's raised over 15 million quid in his name now to, you know, find more effective ways to detect and treat cancer. And it's doing that. It's obviously been tough during the pandemic, but people are still doing that. And um, it's such an important, such an important cause. And Harry's made a big big contribution to that both um you know he'll be doing that financially but also in terms of you know reminding people about the foundation which is which is really important one of the points that i really really do like about the book is that obviously the majority of the focus is on newcastle united and what sir bobby did there but there is a decent portion which is properly dedicated to the foundation it isn't just a the it's mentioned at one point that there are the actual chapters dedicated to it and the the actual effect of it and for I think in many ways, and for someone who didn't actually know Sir Bobby personally, but I'm sure that he would he would be proud of that as well. That he saw that as he said it was his last great team. That that's his quote. And yeah, so that's how my involvement Harry came in. He put a heck of a lot of effort in the book, and he did sound bits across. And I mean, he, he says that I made a lot of it. I didn't make that many edits at all. It was very, it was very good <laughs> from the beginning. And one of the things I wanted to ask Harry was going into it. You said that you were growing up during that time and you had your own memories of it. Did any of your memories change? Was there any of your perceptions changed from what you learned having spoken to people? Was there, was there certain things about Sir Bobby that surprised you? Were there certain events which took on a different uh, narrative to what you thought in yourself as, as to what had happened during that time? I had some suspicions, uh, Chris, with, with, with various different things. Um, like, for example, the way it ended, uh, which, which is very... So acrimonious and, and things. And I, I had some suspicions. So I, I, I did want to, to check out if the narrative and the myth that sort of a lot of myths that came up around certain things, particularly the ending, would change. And, they, and lo and behold, they did. And that's what I'm really hoping for. I'm really proud that a couple of people have come to me so far who read the book and said, my perceptions have changed from reading the book. And that, you know, I thought I knew this and I thought I knew that. And actually, it's completely changed. And that was something that was really important to me. I really wanted that, the sort of, thing to come across because that happened to me as I say I mean what's really interesting is the bit between Rude Hullet leaving and Bobby coming in is just just the detail that I got on how toxic it was 
was eye-opening and there's a lot of that in the book and I'm really proud of it so that was what I was really looking for was to be able to to have my perception changed and my perspective changed and that 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 would happen to the reader as well we had a conversation about this on Friday didn't we Carrie and I found it fascinating you talking about the the healing that had happened at Newcastle United at the time that there was a big rift friends who had fallen out and there was broken relationships there was a lot of healing that that needed to happen before that team could go forward and I found it fascinating talking to you about that and there's some real insight in that in the book isn't there yeah that's something that I as I say I was really sort of taken aback by just how how much detail there was that I got in terms of the rift and in terms of people falling out with each other you know John Carver being a, a, a coach on the team friends with the likes of Shearer friends with Paul Ferris who's a who's a physio but brought into the setup by Rude Hullett so he feels sort of um some sort of sort of loyalty that's the word I was looking for but to, to Rude and he's really caught in the middle. And then when Rude leaves, he has to apologise to the senior players and says he'll do better. Freddie Shepard apologising to Rob Lee was something that was pretty amazing, which sort of proves to you that everybody knew what was really wrong at the club at the time. Everyone was aware of it, you know, especially around the Sunderland game when he was making comments. And I'm sure George was in the press conferences when he was making comments, derisory comments about the derby itself and saying it wasn't the true derby. And that sort of everyone was aware of the problems that were there, but they were just because the manager was in place, they couldn't do anything about it. The healing really started once once Rude leaves. It was an extraordinary time. I mean, we Chris and I did something on the Hullet season. It was really about the FA Cup final at the end of the season before, but actually the big moment was the Sunderland game, and even the cup final was building up to the Sunderland game. But if Newcastle had won that cup final. Shearer would almost certainly have gone at that. I mean, he would almost certainly have gone. And certainly if they'd won, uh, if Newcastle had won the Sunderland game, um, he would have gone. And the, you know, from doing previous things with, with uh, you know, with Paul Ferris, and he talks in his book about, about them sweeping the physio room for bugs. And Ferris was seen as um, Shearer's confidant, which he was, and sort of Derek Wright was was you know kind of in the middle of it, and there were all these sort of rifts through the club. Now I spoke to Hullet as well about that, and he is sort of adamant about how right he was, and he sort of will say, "You look at the club now; they've still not won anything, they've still not done anything," and you know, ask yourself why. He was trying to change the whole culture of the club, and you know, if he'd stayed, then Shearer would have gone and it would have been a completely sort of different football club. But you're right, Harry, there were so many rifts that had to be healed. And some of those things with Shearer were so basic that Bobby did, but, you know, turning him to face goal again is the, is the thing that he always talks about. But he'd forgotten how to be a footballer almost because his confidence was so low. You don't think of Shearer as being that kind of person, but he needed TLC. He needed Bobby's arm around his shoulder and um, I mean the other thing I really like uh, about Harry's book is that reminder you sort of have this golden memory of or I certainly do of Bobby's time at the club and we think about the Champions League and you think about them finishing third and all those things and him you know his sort of wonderful turn of phrase and all that but the first couple of years were pure graft it was pure graft he was a workaholic. I mean, he was an absolute workaholic. He threw himself into it. It's that old cliche about being first in and last out, but he was, he absolutely was. And he was old enough to have brought out, I'm trying to count them, they're on my shelves, I think four autobiographies, four or even five. And the first one was called Time on the Grass. And that was about Ipswich. And, you know, for him, that was that was the secret of football. It was time, you know, your time. And it took, it took Bobby time, but it was... Uh, it was worth it. There's an awful lot of detail in the book as well, Harry, and some of the people who you spoke to, I mean, a lot of Newcastle fans wouldn't have heard from, from those voices before. What was that process like of getting in touch with people? And you spoke to Sir John Hall and you spoke to Bobby Robson's family and stuff like that as well. What was that process like of getting in touch with those people? A lot of the time it was it was potluck. I would, I would message them and hope that they would respond. And, and to be fair, Chris was crucial to helping me contact a lot of people. Um, Liz at the foundation. Who I should actually say that, you know, talking about the foundation, I went to speak to Liz at the very start before I pitched the idea, before I did any interviews, I went to speak to Liz at the Copthorne Hotel on the Quayside and we sat and talked about it and, and she said that, you know, we, we, we figured out how we would, how, if they could help and how they would help and what, what we would do. And 
it was Liz who got me in touch with, with Mark. Mark then got me in touch with Charlie Woods. And it sort of, it was a, a domino effect of the, the, I think I got a really big, I got all the big people I really wanted. I, I didn't get everybody I wanted, but I got everybody, I got all the key areas covered. I got family, I got, you know, the, the confidant and the friend in Charlie Woods. I got the board in, in Sir John Hall. I got the players and the coaching staff in, in, in John Carver, who John Carver was, was incredible in terms of taking that book and, and giving the detail and the colour in terms of the matches and the training ground, what happened behind the scenes alongside, you know, Gordon Milne as well, who's the director of football. I couldn't quite believe how lucky I was. As I said, I didn't get everybody I wanted, but I got everybody I needed. I can't thank Mark Robson enough for how gracious he was. I can't really complain on, on who I've got. And I think that's, that's why the, the book I'm so proud of it is the detail given by the people I spoke to. I've got a question for George. I was watching the the Sir Bobby documentary again the other day, and obviously, as someone who didn't know him, you hear the way that he speaks in public, he sees interviews, and it's unique. It's like nothing. He has an amazing turn of phrase, which I've never really seen someone speak in the way that he does before either. Is that just is that just what he was like all the yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, he was extraordinary. I mean, I did, so I inherited his column at the Times, which Ollie Holt had done before me and I took it over. And I felt like this sort of enormous sense of responsibility for it because he was someone who was very important to me. I'd gone to the same school as him in, in Langley Park and suddenly he was back at Newcastle and I was writing his column. But in some ways it was easy because... He knew exactly what he was doing. You know, he'd been doing that kind of stuff for years and years. He understood that he had to provide something for you. And he had those turns of phrase. So if you jotted down those turns of phrase, you would make it sound like him. You know, the idea behind doing a column is so that it sounds like that person, not not that it sounds like me or somebody else. But I've sort of said this so many times now that it's that, you know, I feel like it's sort of becoming a cliche. But when I work with him on his book at the end, he was poorly, you know, he was dying at that point. And he looked ill, but I would go in and see him and I would come away from being with him feeling better about myself because that's the kind of personality he had. Now, you can understand completely how somebody would play for him because he just had that personality. There was that sort of stardust about his personality that stayed with you once you'd gone away from him. And so... He made you feel better. And I, I remember, so, you know, doing the book, sure, Harry will have had similar moments. You understand that it's part of his legacy, you know, what you're doing. And Harry, you've, you know, you, you're providing part, part of his legacy as well. And so I would come away feeling better about myself and then I would feel guilty. I had terrible moments of guilt because here was this dying man. I'd spent time with him and I felt better about myself. It was like I was sucking life out of him almost. But he 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 was just he was just that extraordinary character that made you laugh, made you smile, inspired you. I'm not a golfer. I played golf with him once at someone's stag do, and um, he he was roped into playing golf, and so were a lot of the Newcastle players. And I was on his team, and honestly, I was dog shit. It was awful. It was so embarrassing. It was a disastrous day. Anyway, we got to a par three, and um, I hit, again just hit this shot about twenty yards along the ground. It was awful. It was embarrassing. And there were the group behind, which included a couple of colleagues, Michael Walker, our own Michael Walker from The Athletic. And Michael laughed his head off really, really, ha, 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 fucking terrible. And Bobby just turned on his heels and had a go at him. And he said, don't you dare have a go at him. He's been brilliant all day. He's been absolutely brilliant. That's the first bad shot he's done. Don't you listen to them, son. He's absolutely unfair. And it's like Michael was like, pushed back on his heels. And, you know, I strode off down the fairway like Seve Ballesteros thinking, I mean, <laughs> I strode for about five yards until I got to my ball. But you had that sense of what it would be like to play for him. He could speak to, I mean, I was a lot younger than him, but he was able to speak to Bellamy. You know, he, I found it fascinating that his first hero was Albert Stubbins at St. James's Park. And yet he was able to deal with Bellamy. You know, he was able to deal with Bellamy and Jenness these young kids, he found a way of communicating that spanned generations. I found that extraordinary. Everyone still sort of agrees on the on how good that period was and how how amazing uh, his impact was when he came in. Harry, as far as the as far as the book's concerned itself, was there, was there any sections of the of the history that were harder to write than others? This first full season, I struggled really badly with, and I remember ringing or texting. Warren Barton and saying, have you got anything? 
for this. <laughs> um, the third chapter is actually the second season because the second chapter is a sort of standalone chapter that I delve into but, to Bobby's character. And but that's, that's it. You remember the start. You remember that incredible start. You remember the incredible game against... Uh, Sheffield Wednesday and and then it's like you almost go straight from there yeah. to the Champions League and but you don't there was yeah. you know there's there's not a lot glamorous about 11th and 11th mm. and there's not a lot of glamour who was his first signing was it, it was Kevin Gallagher wasn't Kevin it Kevin Gallagher yeah 500 grand or something like that so, yeah. and there wasn't money you know there wasn't money yeah so yeah um you know it was a it was a it was a tough it was a tough slog for him at the start and I think but you know again I think that's important you know it's not necessarily sexy or or glamorous to write about but it wasn't just waving a magic wand it was it was hard work but equally in there though also you've also got what, what I was able to do was paint the picture of the so everyone remembers Bellamy and Robert coming in and that's when it changes but yeah. you've got um, Lua Lua coming in and you've got Amiobi getting promoted and yeah. suddenly the, the squad is and Andy O'Brien and uh, Wayne Quinn all these guys coming in they're all that sort of British and Irish young young core of players which is the hallmark of Bobby's team started in the in the couple of years before you can talk about the seeds of what actually happened but George is right absolutely my mind when I was writing it went straight from you know, Sunderland and Chelsea that season and Bobby coming in all the way to, you know, Manchester United 4-3. Yeah. And suddenly, but there's a whole year yeah. in between where you've got to fill. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I, found it, I found it initially quite difficult to do. Harry, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you and it's such an interesting topic and, and, and you've obviously put your heart and soul into this book and, and it's a fantastic read. Um, people can get it on Amazon. Is there anywhere else where they can, where they can find the book? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon, um, Waterstones, WH Smith, um, and you can, if there's enough call for, I mean, I've been asking people to to fund that donation to the foundation. I've been asking people to um, DM me on Twitter and come to me directly so I can sign a copy, and then they can um, help fund the, the donation to the to the foundation straight away. Um, so there's there's all those options. If there's enough call for it, then I can make another uh, order to the distributors and get some more copies in. But the, but but if you want it quickly and easily, then Amazon. And- I reckon reckon can you know heartily recommend it to um you know it's a great great present it's a and as you said at the start it's a great reminder of when newcastle were good and when newcastle wanted to be good and tried to be good not that long ago so yeah please buy it harry's poured his heart into it and it's uh it's a great great read absolutely well harry you're going to stick about with us uh now and, and we're going to do the archive which is a bit more of an in-depth look at that 2002 2003 champions league season uh so we'll, we'll crack on with that now Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's pretty iconic, this, isn't it? The 2002-2003 Champions League season. They, they come off the back of a fantastic season and they are put into a qualifying round with Zeljeznica and astonishing 5-0 win on aggregate before we get into the real meat of this. Now, I have very different memories of this season to, I'm sure you guys will, if you, you know, George is a journalist who was covering it. I worked in a call centre at the time, selling holidays for a living. I didn't get to go to many games. You know, I wasn't particularly active as a fan, but I was always listening on the radio and watching watching the team on the TV. But I remember feeling wonderful about the club being in the Champions League. And it gives you a sense of pride of Newcastle United, which I think has been lost over the years, hasn't it? And and this season was a real sort of high point for the club, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's how you would best describe it. I mean, the whole thing was... It was such a roller coaster. Obviously, it, it's almost like a movie in that it starts badly in the group stage. And it's not just being in the Champions League. That record that Newcastle had of losing the first three games and then still qualifying stood until Atalanta did it, I think, two years ago. Yeah, no, so, one else, no one else had done that. No one else had lost three games, the first three games. Astonishing yeah. achievement. It was such a difficult start. And then it was, and then the end, I mean, the, the final game is... To, to talk about that game, it, it's so emotive all the way through. And then the inter-game is very similar. But the Juve game, people don't talk about the Juve game, even though it's a win at home against the finalists of that season as well. 
and the Italian champion, it doesn't quite get the same love as the final game, as the Inter game, even though it's possibly possibly the biggest result. It's a bigger win, isn't it? Yeah. We were out at that point. I mean, we were effectively out. Yeah, that, that is part of it as well. Yeah. It felt like a great result, but in a hopeless cause. Yeah. I mean, I th- you know, I, th- I think that's how it felt. That's a really good point, actually. People forget that Newcastle played 14 matches in the Champions League that season. Yeah. I mean, it's astonishing. Ridiculous. It's absolutely it's astonishing. And, you know, there's so many, so many sort of extraordinary moments. I, I mean, I was there for a lot of them, um, certainly there for the Feyenoord game, which was um, which was just mental. I mean, you know, again, I sort of talk, you know, as a journalist, you don't soak up a lot of what you're doing because you're, your head's down. And so with a game like that, when you've got all that stuff happening at the end, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare that you want, obviously. Yeah. But your first reaction to something like that, and Chris Chris will know this, and Harry will know this, is you swear, oh, fuck off. No, no. Because everything you've written is about Newcastle, is about <laughs> Newcastle losing. <laughs> and then suddenly Newcastle yeah. have, have won and they've yeah, qualified. That's the change. You almost don't remember it until later. You sort of have to take a step back, wait till your heart rate calms down, and then sort of consider it afterwards. But then there was the you know Barcelona. And the Barcelona game being put back by 24 hours, wasn't it? Barcelona in the rain and Bobby being back there, very special, very special moment. There might be people listening who, who you know, who are even younger than Harry and Chris and who don't have any recollection of this whatsoever, have never had anything to do with it or seen it. Newcastle had a, an initial group stage of Dynamo, Kiev, Feyenoord and Juventus, which in itself is quite a challenge. I mean, Juventus, like Harry says, were the, were the Italian champions. Feyenoord, a fantastic team with some great players. Dynamo- won the UEFA Cup the year before, I think, Feyenoord. Yes, that's right, yeah. And Dynamo Kiev, a little bit of an unknown quality, but still had some really good players. Newcastle lost to Dynamo Kiev 2-0 in the first game. They lost 1-0 to Feyenoord at home in the next game. And then Juventus beat Newcastle 2-0 at the Stadio Deli Alpi with uh, Del Piero scoring both of the goals. And at this point, anybody who's a fan of the club would be thinking, well, that's us. That's us done. You know, that, that's it. It's, it's been nice. It's been a lovely run. We've had fun, but that's all we're getting. But then, you know, fortunes turn around, don't they? And, and like you say, Newcastle beat Juventus 1-0 at St. James's Park and Andy Griffin scores that goal. Iconic celebrations of running around like a madman, like a fullback who's just scored a goal because they don't do that. Against the best goalkeeper in the world at the time, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then Newcastle go away to Kiev and they win 2-1. And then we get that 3-2 against Feyenoord. Opportunity for Newcastle on by Shearer. Here's Bellamy, chance for Craig Bellamy! And in stoppage time at the end of the first half, Bellamy back to fitness, back from a ban, Newcastle in front. Now, Kieran Dyer. Shearer wanting the pullback. Opportunity for Newcastle, it comes out to Viana. Well struck! It's in! It's two! Kalu. No space for Bombarda. It's 2-1. Oh, Newcastle, be careful. Oh, Dyer, poor, straight to Bosfeld. And learning! And now Feyenoord at the centre of the Champions League, second phase place in their nostrils. I don't think I've ever seen a game of football like it. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like it watching it at home on the telly. Shearer. The outpour and the release of emotion when Bellamy puts that oh, ball in Dyer at the end. It's, in. Oh, it's the closest it's thing to euphoria I think I've ever experienced as a football fan. It was just astonishing, wasn't it? And the noise and the commentary and everything that goes with it as well. It's an amazing moment. John Carver is so good at describing the bench that, that day. And what I found really funny is the way that the the sort of narrative and the thing that you all think, everyone thinks they know what John Carver's like, they know what Bobby's like. Bobby's the yeah. calm, experienced one. And he becomes that at the end And when John Carver's going mental when the goal goes in. But at 2-2, after two, 20 minutes after being, you know, 2-0 up, Bobby goes mental. And you see that on the highlights, he turns around to John Carver and yells in his face. And John Carver's the one left to turn around to Bobby and said, just stay calm, which is really <laughs> weird. <laughs> and then, and then at the end, it, it all flips back into place, and 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 it, 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 you know, it goes. Everyone goes mental, and you get the description of going back to the the hotel uh, for beers, yeah. and and Bobby slips off and has a nice champagne in his room. That sort of is what you would expect. But that whole thing, that that final game, is is such a an iconic game, not just because of what needed to happen. And Shay Given talks about wanting to prove to a lot of people that they could do it because even at that stage they'd kind of felt like they'd been written off even yeah. having beaten Juve and beaten Dino Kiev they still 
didn't feel like they were getting the respect they deserved. And it was that moment that people went, okay. Yeah. Of course, the second group phase starts as the first one. Did, <laughs> yeah. And that's square one a little bit. But at that moment, it was like, I think John Carver says it's like winning the Champions League. But of course, Newcastle go through into, a, into what was dubbed the group of death with Internacional, uh, Barcelona and Bayer Leverkusen. And again, we start off with, with two defeats. What I will say, though, is a, a wonderful moment where Shola Ramiobi levels things up at the new Camp with a goal. And uh, uh, one of those moments that I still watch on YouTube every so often just mm. to think, yeah, we did that. We scored mm. at the new Camp. Yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff. And then we have two, three, one victories over Bayer Leverkusen where things turn around and we start to look like we could actually do something in this group. And it's it's the, always the case for Newcastle. It's the hope that kills you. You know, you, you you have two bad results, you have two good results, and you start to believe. And that's the danger, isn't it, Chris? It's like you suddenly feel, oh, actually, we could do something. Yeah, I'm getting fizzy pants. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned those. So at that point, the Champions League, and I think it was only for a couple of seasons, had two group stages. So that's, that's why Newcastle right, yeah. played the 14 games, because they had the two qualifiers, then they had six group stage games. Then you, you go from that into another group stage, and those teams that you mentioned there, I mean, they're, they're European heavyweights. Oh, the first yeah, group huge. is hard enough. The second one is is absolutely massive. And what I find astonishing is you look back at the period, I think this almost gets overlooked. It's like, oh, Newcastle won the Champions League and they got through the second group stage. But they're also competing for the league title. They yeah. are really competing for the league title. And you think about it now, and you think about the Mike Ashley era, and, oh, we can't go for the FA Cup because there's too many games and all this sort of stuff, and we can't compete there. Yeah. Newcastle United were both going for the league title and managed to na- navigate 14 games in the Champions League to get through to the second group stage. That is an astonishing achievement. He had a very good squad, Robson Lee built, but it wasn't massive. Yeah. He still didn't have the riches that some of the best clubs did. And yet to navigate that is, I just find astonishing. He didn't sign a player for over £10 million in his entire reign. That's amazing, isn't it? And I think I even mentioned that in, against Man United. When they finished fourth, Man United was six points better off having spent £50 million on Dan Nistel and Veron. And if you put that into context, and you put the, you know, with all due respect to the likes, and Steve Caldwell is so honest about this. Steve Caldwell, Andy Griffin, Andy O'Brien, they're not going to go and move to Arsenal if they leave Newcastle or Manchester and play in the Champions League again. And yet, Bobby inspired them to do that, while also, as Chris points out, battling for the league title, which is crazy. It's, it's incredible. Slight trivial point. My highlight from going to Bayer Leverkusen, I can't remember anything about the match or anything about the stadium. I can't remember anything, but I do remember going to the club shop (laughs) and coming back with a signed photo of Ralph Minge, who was a coach at Bayer Leverkusen (laughs) at the time. And that is my and that is my favourite ever piece of sporting memorabilia, which I still have. It's faded now, so that you can't brilliant. see the signature anymore, sadly, but it's still on my fridge. It's on my fridge. Ralph Minge. Oh, I've just looked up. He's currently works as sporting of, director of Dynamo Dresden. Of course he does. Still in the game. One of my favourite things, which I didn't know about until Friday when I had a chat with Harry on the phone, is the, the Barcelona game, the one that was, was rained off initially, and then they played the game 24 hours later. Now, there was a bit of talk about whether the game was going to be put back a day or whether it was going to be put back a week. And there was an awful lot of excitement in the Newcastle camp, as, as Harry told me. They found out that Shakira was staying in the same hotel as the Newcastle team. And a few of the lads had wanted to try and get into the party she was having on the rooftop the day after the cancelled game. Now, if the game had been put back a week, then a number of the players could have got in there. And I think we've avoided some kind of sliding doors moment here where Gerard Piquet could have potentially been replaced by Kieran Dyer or, <laughs> or Stephen Caldwell even. <laughs> and I just think it's a, it's a wonderful story, Harry. And you were saying Stephen Caldwell told me that story and, and, and it just made you laugh out loud. It was great. I had to get him to repeat it and like verify it like again. I, I didn't think I'd heard him correctly first time. <laughs> and I thought as soon as you said it, like... Even if it makes no contextual sense, that's going right in the middle of the book because it's just, it's so funny. And it's so, without naming names, you can imagine how gutted certain players of that team would have been when they find out that, oh, we have to go and play Barcelona tomorrow instead of going upstairs for a party with Shakira. I couldn't wait to be able to talk about it because it's just, I just can't believe that it's never, no one's ever said that before. It's just, but it's, it's almost so fitting that, Really, it's one of those things that isn't really that important to the to the wider story, but it just makes it tick for me. That sort of thing. Those are the sorts of stories that I, that you you go in as George and Chris will know when you go into an interview 
you want someone to tell you something like that. And when they do, it's just like gold. Lucky that my breasts are small and humble, so you don't confuse them with <laughs> mountains. Which is one of the great lyrics, one yeah. of the great lyrics. It's a proper what-if moment for me, though. I mean, I imagine, <laughs> you know... The MTV Video Music Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome <laughs> Shakira Amiobi. <laughs> just imagine. It would be astonishing, wouldn't it? It was just brilliant. Oh, anyway. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, Newcastle were knocked out in the end. We drew 2-2 uh, with, with uh, again, a, a pretty iconic game and a, and a game that a lot of Newcastle fans who travelled away at the time called up as being one of their favourite ever away trips. Alan Shearer with two goals, of course, and the, the astonishing atmosphere inside the San Siro as well. Again, it's one of those moments of pride that I that I had in my club at the time. It was, it, you know, I'd seen the San Siro on on TV a number of times, and I used to watch uh, football Italia on Channel Four when I was a kid on a Sunday afternoon, and loved that show and loved Italian football. And then to see my team playing in that great stadium was it was a real moment of pride for me as well. And and of course, Barcelona beating Newcastle United 2-0 at home in the last game of the group stage. And they go out, but filled with pride. And, and, it, and you know, they made a real good effort of it and a real good fist. And I think it's still an astonishing time period in the, in the club's history. If I get my timings right, I was spent most of the Milan trip being furious because Sunderland appointed Howard Wilkinson as manager. I think, if I'm right, we were all stuck in our rooms because we were obviously all northeast writers there. Um, if I've got my timing right. So that spoiled Milan. Ruined. Well, Harry, listen, thank you so much for, for coming on and, 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 and talking about the book with us and going through those old memories of the Champions League season. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, mate, honestly, and, and stay in touch and come back and tell us how the book's getting on and, you know, if, you, if you're going to write any more, good luck with everything. I hope it goes brilliantly for you. And thanks a lot for coming on. It's been great fun. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I do listen to all the, all the episodes. So I'm aware of how raggy it's going to get for George with the quiz in about five minutes. This is the best thing about writing the book is coming on and talking about Bobby and, and doing this. It's been, been fantastic, so thank you. As you can see, it's a lovely day. So for me, it's a great day to be announced as the new manager of Newcastle United Football Club. I'm very proud of that and I'm absolutely thrilled. It's a great challenge. I'm up for it. I'm not afraid of it. And I'm going to really enjoy working in the Northeast again. We have to bring about a set of results that the board and the fans deserve. Right then, boys, it's quiz time. And I just want to, before we start this, I need to, to register for the record. Can the record show that I am complaining about the fact that I have to do a Bobby Robson-themed quiz against the man who literally wrote the book on Sir Bobby Robson? I want to, I want the, the record to show right, that I'm putting... And I know we make a joke about George every weekend, how he can't remember anything and he wouldn't know his own birthday unless it was written down for him. But this is bullshit, by the way. I'm saying this now. So if I lose this, I'm just if taking I lose this it, heavily. Sure, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm just taking a note in the record here. Tell I can see that. That's that. good. Right. If I lose this heavily, right. I, I don't want any flack for this. All right. Absolutely okay. ridiculous. Your your record is noted. Absolutely ridiculous. Noted. How are then, Chris? Right. Well, anyway, for the pub this week is uh, the Newcastle Arms, just down ah. from St James's. Uh, Wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. Often see on match day, okay. people st- stood outside. Been drunk in there many times um, over the years. Yes, uh, always has good does good beer. Does have good beer. Some of my beer. earliest memories of going to football was sort of stood outside there, not drinking. Not I was only like six years old. Come on, Chris, um, be honest. <laughs> half a pint of mild. But we stood outside the Newcastle Arms. You know, it's quite small inside, so you know the quiz is and um, it's quiz time. But the quiz is going to happen well, both inside and outside. Well, it's nice. I don't think you, I don't think you can drink outside the Newcastle Arms because you're on that main street. You can definitely stand outside. I've stood, I've stood outside. I don't know if you can drink outside. But yes, but you were six, Chris. What were you doing outside the Newcastle Arms at the age of six anyway? Um, I was, Why were you I was just let loose, really. Um, but anyway, so we, we're, we're at the Newcastle Arms, regardless of whether we're inside or outside. We're having a nice pint. Well, uh, I want to be inside so right, I can drink well, you're outside. You're having, a, you're, having <laughs> right. 
Can you be outside and me be inside? I'm happy with that. Right, so I'm outside, you're inside, but I am the quiz master. And you've already buggered up the first round of my quiz because one of the questions was going to be uh, who was the first permanent sign to Bobby Robson made. So we've scrapped the first round. Oh, I would have got that. We've scrapped the, fi- scrapped the first round. First round is gone. So second round is scorers. Right, what? Um, so I'm going to go first with George. Ugh. So who scored... The first goal of the Sir Bobby Robson era. Oh, it was at first Chelsea. Newcastle wasn't goal. It? No, first Newcastle goal. Yeah. Oh, first Newcastle Sorry, goal. Oh, okay, right. So they lost at Chelsea. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say Shearer, but I don't know. Taylor, do you know? Gary Speed. No, he was a guest on the podcast. I believe Aaron Hughes previously. Aaron Hughes. All oh, right. Okay. Did he? Yes, he scored the first in the eight nil. He scored because he, 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 he remembered he shouldn't have been there, but he just ran at the box and scored header. So that was the first and 8-0 victory over Sheffield United on the 17th yeah. on September 19th, 1999. So Taylor, yeah. which player scored the final goal of the Sir Bobby Robson era? Newcastle player oh. again. Which Newcastle player scored the final goal of the Sir Bobby Robson era? Oh God. Um Craig Bellamy. Incorrect, George. I just always say I'm unsure because it's bound to be right eventually. So it was a 4-2 defeat away at Aston Villa mm, on August Villa. the 28th, 2004. It was Andy O'Brien. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Piss off, Chris. So it's nil-nil going into the penalties round. And this is sort of copied oh. from George's, but it is actually a literal penalties round. So on August the 27th, 2003, Newcastle lost 1-0 at home to Partizan Belgrade in the Champions League third qualifying round, second leg. They eventually lost on penalties. Between you, I'd like to alternate you to alternate as to who the penalty takers for Newcastle were. Regardless of whether they missed or scored, I don't really care, but just I don't need them any particular order. But I want the first to give me an incorrect answer loses, unless obviously you both do at the same time. So there are seven in total, seven penalty takers. Taylor, you go first. Um, penalty takers. Uh, so seven, the seven in total for both misses and scorers. Uh, Alan Shearer would have to be one, wouldn't he? Alan Shearer, yes, took the first penalty, missed it. Missed it, yeah, that was my only answer. As I say, I answer Alan Shearer to everything. I'd say Alan Shearer again. See what would happen if I do that. Just get it wrong, wouldn't I? Oh, Christ on a bike. Um, I was there. Doesn't make any difference. Absolutely blank in my own head. Rob Lee. Incorrect. So, I mean, Taylor's already won, but I'll let Taylor see if he can get any more. Um... Kieran Dyer. I hate this. Kieran Dyer missed the second penalty. The first three were missed. The third miss. Do you know that? No, but I'll say Lauren Robert. No, he didn't take one. Taylor? I mean, this is... Um, Shola. Shola must have scored. Shola scored. So he scored the first penalty. That was the fourth penalty. So the third miss was Jonathan Woodgate. Wow. I was going to say that. You didn't, did you, George? No, I wasn't going to say that. Do you know the other two goal scorers? Um, Gary Speed. No, did Luar take one? Luar scored. Luar scored. Luar scored the second. Right. Um, God. Uh, Lee, was Lee Boyer there at the time? No, it wasn't Lee Boyer. So the third was Jermaine Genus mm. got the other one, and the final miss was also Aaron Hughes. So Newcastle went. Newcastle missed their first three penalties, but then still managed to get to sudden death, and then st- still lost, having won the first leg as well, one 0 away. All right. That was. Sort of the travesty of that, that era, the partisan Belgrade. It was a bizarre. I think from now on, I should only ask questions in the quiz because <laughs> it's pointless, me. Have one? It's absolutely pointless. Yes, yes you have one, but I'm going to quickly do the tiebreaker anyway. So, <laughs> not that it that matters, but. I didn't so even Bobby know I'd won. Managed... Sorry, Chris. Is that it? I didn't know I'd won. Yes, you've won. You've yeah, won yeah, again. Yeah. George has lost again. So, so Bobby Robson managed 255 games across all competitions in Newcastle manager. How many of them did he win? Oh, God. Of course, it's two wins. So, 255 games in all competitions. George can answer first or second. He can pick. It's up to him. I'll go first. Um, I'm going to say one ninety-three. How many games was it, Chris? 255. Um, I think he won 164. 
I mean, they're quite high win ratios you've gone for there. George in particular, which is like almost a almost a four and five win ratio. I was going to say, <laughs> Chris, before you tell me this, 93. Oh, you, I, thought you I, said said 100, I thought you said 193. You said 93. No, 93. Oh, I based mine off what you said, and I thought you said 193 as well. I was originally going to say 127. No, 93. Chris, this is ridiculous. So, <laughs> I've gone for a high 93. third, as it were. So, so, Can I change yeah. my answer, Chris? Fuck no, just answer because give us so the answer. So the answer is 119. So you had a 46.7 win well. ratio. You had 64 Bullshit. defeats and I was 70, much closer. 64 draws I was and 72 defeats. But George, I won that. George won that, but that doesn't, that's completely irrelevant. So Taylor, yes, you win the Sir Bobby Robson quiz. Also. Yeah, Tim. Stitch that coping. <laughs> I hate this quiz. <laughs> hey, well, there we go, chaps. That's another another episode of Pod on the Tine, all done and dusted. It's been good fun. I really enjoyed the chat with Harry. Uh, and obviously, get yourself on the uh, on the website uh, and check out that latest forty percent offer on subscriptions. Uh, we'll be back next week. Hopefully, Newcastle will pick some points up against Brighton, and we'll have a little bit of positivity going. Uh, but until then. Thanks very much. Take care of yourselves. Look after yourselves, ladies and gents, and we will speak to you very, very soon. Cheers. The Athletic.